Welcome to the Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast. My name is Tim, and I'm joined here in our secret Missing Episodes vault by Paul. Hello. Yes, as Tim says, we're broadcasting live from Addis Ababa in our secret underground Missing Episodes vault. So-called because it's completely missing any episodes of anything, really. Uh, To be honest, it's, uh, well, it's just a vault. Anyway, what we'll be doing during this little podcast project is simply reviewing those early Doctor Who stories affected by missing episodes in turn. We'll be looking at the background to the stories, the stories themselves, any commercial DVD or Blu-ray releases, and then maybe we'll see if we fancy any of them being recovered. Yep, the the stories behind the backgrounds, the, the stories behind those stories, maybe even the stories behind the stories behind the stories. I mean, that could go on. Are we going to do the recovered stories? Um, well, I wouldn't mind talking about Tomb of the Cybermen and Enemy of the World, for instance. We can be selective, can't we? Yeah, play it by ear. Uh, talking of which, that was a rather quirky tune you played at the start. Shades of Galaxy 4, I thought. Yes, Shades of Galaxy 4, indeed. Um, well, initially, I was going to play in some Marco Polo incidental music, but it was uh, a bit dull. I might, if, if we're lucky, I might play it underneath some of our conversation at some point. Oh, goody. To add a bit of texture, but it was dull. Dull and zithery. So that's 79p on Amazon, I won't get back. But then, in (laughs) overreaction to that dullness, I mashed up, as the kids say, Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys, you know, rather a fitting missing episode sentiment, with Hartnell's speech from uh, the Dalek Invasion of Earth slash Five Doctors. Hmm. And then I threw in a bit of the old... um, Cyberman music. And Wow. Yeah. That sounds wow. That sounds it was amazing. it was it was horrific. Oh vomit inducing. Don't go on. What? Play it. Come on, you can't you can't tease us like that. Yes, but we've already lost the three listeners that oh well if no one's listening, I guess I can play it. Here we go. One day I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back. Until then, there must be no regrets, no tears, no anxieties. Just go forward in all your beliefs and prove to me that I am not mistaken in mine. I think that was rather haunting. <laughs> oh, uh, I don't know if you've recorded a podcast before, Paul, but but mm. if anything goes awry, we just push on. We're professionals. We just push on. We're very unlikely to stop recording if you fluff a line or something. Uh, so we just push through and carry on. Right. But, but if I do... Well, if you desperately need to redo something the best thing you can do is swear we can't put that out oh okay like f- <laughs> yes like that paul or i don't know a p- exactly or tim you absolute that's p- enough paul thank you thank you is that everything
I think so. I mean, if you desperately need a drink from too much yakking, just go and lick the walls there. They're dripping. Yeah. Uh, might just take a sip from my gourd, actually. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Anyway, shall we crack on? Let's. Marco Polo, Serial D. So you can be there, happily watching 13 weeks worth of this nascent early Doctor Who. Good word. Then, like someone dropping a grand piano on your head, crang, you're missing the next seven. I know. Like running into a brick wall, isn't it? A brick wall of, of emptiness and disappointment. It's, it's remarkable, isn't it? And it's like when you watch one of the orphans as well. You just, wanna, you just think, right, <laughs> next episode, we carry on, yeah. and you can't. Yeah, the, the orphan episode ones are the worst, aren't they? All, all the different episode positions have their strengths and weaknesses, but when you have an epi- a gripping episode one and then the rest is silence, it's just desolate, isn't it? Such as there aren't any. Web of Fear. Ah, the Web of... Uh, well, yeah, okay, fair enough. Be- the best episode of Web of Fear, the, best, the single best orphan episode I always thought back in mm, the day. Yeah. I, I may have... Changed yeah. my opinion since then. I'll tell you at the end of this <laughs> of our own marathon run through what's left. But um, yeah, I, that, I always thought it was textbook. Twenty five minutes of Doctor Who. Yes, indeed. Weber Fear One, and yeah, yeah, for all those years. Yeah, yeah, mm. that was it. Yeah. Now you get to watch episode two as well before it stops. But anyway, <laughs> we, let's let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> oh dear. Yes. Um, Yes, it's jarring. It's jarring. And it's a sort of ridiculous project that we're undertaking in that we're trying to do a review of the most difficult stuff to review. I guess the point uh, the point to make about Marco Polo is that it's not just a, a gap, even though it's not even just quite a long gap, it's the first gap. And it's a gap at a point where the programme is continuing to evolve and takes a rapid um, change mm. of gears, sort of exponential growth if, if so many, in so many ways, the mm. characters and the storytelling, and it would be really nice to see that. Yes, we can, we can tell what's happening. Yeah, but interesting, isn't it? And 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 yeah, it just feels like it should be there as well because so much of those first two years are are complete. It, it feels even more adrift because we should have a copy, arguably, and we have so much of everything else in those first couple of years. I've always thought of it as well as a companion piece to the Daleks in that it rounds off that those that first few months I'm not saying it's intentional but just in my sort of headcanon you've got this sci-fi seven-parter with the Daleks where they're on an alien planet and this is the return if you like this is the the historical seven-parter and in the Daleks the the characters don't get on very well and the Doctor is completely unknowable whereas in the second seven-parter, and we'll get on to the characterization later on, the Doctor is somewhat more of a known quantity, even though he's erratic. Does that make sense? It does. And it's, um, it's again, another reason why this story is, is in such a unique position. It's both the start of something new. Mm. People, that's, I think that's how people mostly look at it, yeah. because at this point, the Doctor's problems with his new companions have been ironed out, and it's the start of him becoming... The slow path towards him just becoming a more obviously heroic figure. Mm. But it's as well as being the start of something new, it's the end, as you say, of of that first block in which we see pretty much every everything laid out. Mm. In terms of the um the plans put in place by Sidney Newman and David Whittaker, 
it, this program is going to be forwards, backwards, and sideways, isn't it? Yeah. Future, historical, and <laughs> other. An unearthly child is generally agreed not to be a proper historical. It's it's so other. I mean, yes, it's it's just prehistory rather than history. But more to the point, it's before being before recorded history. It might as well be an alien planet. It's just so out there that I think it almost counts more as one of the sideways stories like Edge of Destruction. But it's interesting, um, in, 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 in agreement with that, it's interesting that they choose Marco Polo as the, the subject of the first historical proper mm. in that the accuracy of the history is unknown because my thorough research for this podcast, because I, I, I started wondering why it was Marco Polo and I never did Marco Polo at school. I did a little Twitter survey. I'm a little older than you. I didn't either. No, my my parents did in the 50s. Hmm. And uh, of the 40 people who did my little Twitter survey, I think two or three said they had. Richard thinks he did. Uh, but it, <laughs> it was so long ago for him. I mean, I can just picture him making notes on Marco Polo's travels with his quill pen. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. In the 50s, there was something of a... Um, Marco Polo mania. My research has pointed out, when I say research, it's basically Wikipedia and asking my parents. There was a, a new Penguin edition of the memoir in 58, which was a bestseller. Mm. And prior to that, John Lucarotti had written a multi-part radio drama for CBC Canada. 16 part, I think it was. 16. Uh, yeah a drama which he then borrowed aspects of for for this yep. but my point being that that the that, that all those people who think this is too long should count their blessings my point being that the the actual history of marco polo is impossible to get back to what the truth of it is uh, marco polo was in prison due to some civil difficulty with genoa i think or something and uh, he he apparently um dictated his his memoir to a cellmate and this was in what 1290 or something like that and it has been mistranslated so many times that there are 150 versions out there good lord even more than the bible and there's all sorts of uh, textual analysis that's gone on to discern which was true and which wasn't and they can't quite get to the 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 nub of what was true there, there have been queries as to whether he actually went to China at all, based on observations like he never he never mentions the Great Wall. He never mentions bound feet. But so there's been this academic debate raging about whether he actually went. I think they now think he did go, and that, that some of the tales... It's just, he, he, just not very observant. <laughs> no, I think it might have been in a state of disrepair, the sections that he should have seen or something. Right. That, that it's been pointed out that two others who have given accounts of... of medieval China at the same time have um, also failed to mention the Great Wall. I say all of that as to whether it's a factual history whereas when you get later on to the Reign of Terror or something like that you can be more sure of the facts because it's more recent. Do you think that has much bearing on the story that John Ligarotti presents us? It's not. I mean, if if it was being written now, then it would explicitly the point of the story would be a bit like the Robin Hood version uh, episode we got recently. It would be about seeing the discrepancy between what 
Ah, uh, travellers had grown up believing, and and then mm. reality, wouldn't it? But it's not played that way. No, at it, all. No, 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 no. It's played straight, and it's believed to be straight by John Lucarotti, I think. Mm, yeah. But anyway, I, just, I find it interesting that it's a bit of history that isn't taught now and isn't thought about now, and I, I'm not quite sure why that is. Maybe, maybe it's because China has opened up somewhat, and so it's less of a mysterious place. I don't know. But there's also been a massive shift in the uh, syllabus, the school syllabus, in terms of history, hasn't there? I don't know what you got, but my t- time it was much more much more recent. We had just a very brief overview of world history at primary school, and then by the time we got to, I got to secondary school, it was it was things that were considered relevant. What is the relevance of, of Marco Polo to a broad understanding of of history? I wonder. Maybe it was just there for a bit of colour. So, we, we've touched on it already, but let's talk a little bit about the the effect of the extension of the show's initial 13 weeks to the full year. Yeah. So as you've said, as you've alluded to earlier, this is the start of the second block of recording in that the first 13 episodes were commissioned. It wasn't certain at some point in that run whether they would carry on beyond that. And then this is the start of Permahu. Yes, with a tiny asterisk caveat, which is that it was commissioned for a second 13, right. which is Marco Polo and Keys, turned out to be Marco Polo and Keys of Mariners. Right. The first 13, I d- I, the fact that, as we've said, the the setup is consolidated by the end of it, Edge of Destruction, all the misunderstandings are gone and the team are united and ready to forge on into their new life of exploration. The fact that that is set up by the end of the first 13, do you think that was David Whittaker's way of coming of positioning himself so that it would work as a good ending to the f- if that was it? If Doctor Who finished at that point, that would have been a good ending, but it's also a good springboard for the future, because if so, that's quite cunning. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. The overwhelming, overriding impression I get from the production aspect of the first 13 is that they're flying by the seats of their pants, aren't they? Both both in terms of the scripts and the... Some very ingenious storytelling has been born out of necessity. Yes. But having, having at the end of the first 13 episodes, resolved all the initial conflict, we then, in Marco Polo, see for the first time our team playing more as a unit, and I guess, really, whichever story had ended up here, that's what we would have seen. It would have been the first time people had seen the Doctor continuing to soften. Hmm. We also see them relax and be confident in what they're doing, in that the production itself feels more confident. I think Warris Hussain has spoken about it was a lot more relaxed. But we also see them actually going for what the, uh, the absolute apex of what the original conception was. Whereas they haven't done that up to this point, so they mm. they you know they they're thickly, deeply involved in the history. It's absolutely riddled with educational points for the kiddos, which yes, we'll talk is. about. And then we see the characters all starting to conform more to the little pempics that were provided before they started the first thirteen, if that makes sense. Mm. So you see Barbara being the history teacher and the negotiator. You see Ian being the hero. You see Susan being the teenage girl with the teenage girlfriend. And you see the Doctor being irascible, brilliant, 
unpredictable, erratic, all the rest of it. And you don't see them this crystallized in their characters before this point. No. And, I mean, they had space to do this in, in the Daleks, for example. They had space, but mm. because Terry Nation isn't that sort of writer... No. <laughs> the, the, the characters are just sketched quite thinly. Mm. Ian, Doctor is just the scientist, and Ian is just the man of action. Yeah. And even though there's plenty of room, it's all plot and all excitement and all action. Mm. Whereas here, there is plenty of room. Yeah. Plus, John Lucarotti is probably a better writer. <laughs> he didn't have Nation's career, but no. he. I, I don't think it's not a controversial thing to say, is it? No, it's not. I think he is. Yes. So, before we get into the nitty-gritty of uh, reviewing it, how did you watch it, Paul? How did you enjoy this in preparation? Uh, on this occasion, as probably I always will, I watched the most recent, the second Loose Cannon reconstruction, <laughs> which they... Um, is my mind playing tricks on me? They hadn't only just finished the painstaking attempts to produce a... to recolour thousands of publicity photographs mm, and mm. produce their colour recon <laughs> and then the day afterwards the telesnaps were found I feel Pretty like that's, that's what happened it <laughs> so we both watched it uh, did we did we like it Paul goodness me yes yes ah, I, I find it I've got to be honest I I sort of relaxed into it. I suppose I should have been <laughs> watching it with laser eyes, trying to um, to discern a new a new take on it. But really, I'm so familiar with it now. It feels like a comfy pair of slippers of a story. Hmm. I don't know. I find it rather hypnotic and just <laughs> and warm. It really works for me. The first the first three episodes in particular really work for me because you are seeing this uh, ostentatious display of educational notes. Um, you, you're seeing... It's good kids' TV. The villain is utterly villainous. The four characters are all doing what they should do. They've all got an equal share of, of things to do. And, yeah, it, I, it just tickles me in all the right places. In terms of being good chil children's TV, I think I like the, the fact that it's told with great clarity... Yes. But without being overly simplistic. So yeah. Marco Polo is obviously you know that Marco Polo is the he hero, and that Tagana is the villain. Mm. But they make an attempt to give them a little bit of depth, to play them with a little bit of subtlety. Certainly, um, to Marco Polo. I mean, Polo, the, re yeah. the review in About Time complains that uh, well, they're they're searching around for a complaint, but it says that Tagana is so obviously moustache twirling that it's slightly implausible that Marco doesn't. Pick on him sooner, but I think they they keep just the right side of making Marco look stupid. I think the, the, well, because we understand what's at stake for all of these people, heroes and villains, mm. we can read between the lines and see why they make the decisions they do. Sure, uh, I will say it did drop off a little bit just in that episode four, episode five. Mm. Um, I'm not quite sure whether that is because it, it focuses more on the Susan Ping Cho thing and. I'm a little boy. I'm, I'm, I'm so I'm, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm less interested in in the two teenage girls getting up to stuff. There, there's quite a lot of back and forth. I didn't dislike it. It just dropped off just a little bit. It's unfortunate because they changed the director for episode four to Peter Crocker to uh, <laughs> 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 to uh, Crockett. David Crockett. 
yes, that's the one with his uh, raccoon hat. But yes, it it wasn't too bad. And then I think the last two episodes is absolutely on point. To say the seven-part story dips a bit in the middle is hardly the greatest crime. No. <laughs> uh, well, no. it's not without precedent, and it certainly won't <laughs> it will certainly be repeated. I think one, another reason why the first three episodes are particularly engaging, mm. um, again, coming back to watching it in context, each episode is breaking new ground. It's just within those first few episodes, it's, it's showing us so much that's new, and it's constantly moving, changing, at uh, so many contrasts, like... Um, you know, the setting of the starting the snowy mountains, only a, one episode later we're in the middle of arid desert. Mm. We've gone from complete and utter isolation to uh, busy towns and settlements. And all of it feels real. Yeah. I, I mean, we've already compared it to the Daleks, which is a fair thing to do because they're the, t- the first two uh, future and past stories. They're both seven episodes long. Mm. But the characters here... <laughs> Where Terry Nation panics, and any time he's got a gap, he'll put some action in. Any time John Luke Roddy's got a gap, he'll fill it with characterization. The characters do things that aren't just in service of the plot here, which t- shouldn't be <laughs> a eureka moment. It's it's just good writing. <laughs> there is an irony to praising. Uh, uh, Lucarotti for changing the location every <laughs> every so often, <laughs> and then criticizing uh, Terry Nation for which is exactly what he does in the next story. But anyway, no, you you're absolutely right. That was interesting, isn't it? I guess it's because <laughs> I no, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> it's, it's not quite the same, is it? No, he literally makes every episode look like a different planet. In Keys and Marinus. Yeah. Whereas at least here, I think they can just shuffle the columns around. Yeah. <laughs> and move that pile of sand from here yeah. to there. Yeah. It's probably not quite as yeah. difficult. And then, and then, you know, after the lull, episodes four and five, you, you reach a very satisfactory conclusion, where you get this the the mighty Kublai Khan appearing, uh, instructed to appear as the administrator and not the warlord. So there's a little joke in the title there, isn't there? He's not mighty, he's this little withered mm. old guy who's obsessed with numbers. And then you get the bromance going on with the the Doctor and, and Kublai Khan. The comedy of, of the Doctor's bad back and his kinship with the other old man who's also slightly decrepit. Is that is that the first instance of comedy? I think it is. Yeah, I can't think of... Yeah, there's a couple of lame gags in <laughs> An Earthly Child, and there's a very, very little since then. But this is proper comedy. It's played as comedy. It is indeed. And yeah. what's particularly enjoyable about this is, as you say, that after the lull in the middle, it saves some of its best material until the end. Yeah. He's one of the best. He's saved. He's had an ace up his sleeve in the character of Kubla Khan. It's, it's a great character. It's not what you're expecting. Mm. It shifts gears. Mm. It gives you a new tone, a new in the palette, in the program's palette of, of tones. And it's not even just comedy. It's, it starts off as comedy, but then it takes a slight turn and Kubler Khan becomes an antagonist as well. Mm. So, yes, terrific stuff. But, yeah, the, the proper comedy, which is if prefiguring bolder experiments like the Romans, I suppose. And uh, Yeah. 
Oh, the, the, it was better comedy than the than the Romans in that it was mm. it was it was done more sparingly. But yeah. <laughs> some of it's very subtle. The doctor's listing at the beginning of the last episode. The doctor's listing all his winnings. Oh, it's just <laughs> hilarious. Well, I I lolled, Paul. I lolled when he <laughs> said, I'm, "I'm very much afraid all the commerce from Burma for one year, sire." <laughs> yeah, that's a great Kappa comedy line. Isn't no, it? It's fantastic. Very impressive. Um, if yeah. And the other satisfactory thing in those last two episodes is that I'm I'm more with Tatwood than you are, I think, in that it was a bit moustache-twirling villain, <laughs> Tigana. But yeah. it pays off at the end because you get, even though it's done in, in short time, you get the full explanation of why he is so villainous and what he has been doing. And it adds this whole great historical context and adds scale and therefore you become somewhat more sympathetic to why he's been doing what he's been doing. Because up until that point, you are wondering, well, is he just a villain in the piece for villainy's sake? But I I found it completely satisfactory. Yeah, wonderful stuff. Absolutely marvellous. And I don't say that he's the best written character ever, but um, again, Luke Roth has kept that in reserve, the fact that he has a motivation. Because this is a children's programme, he hasn't felt the need to tell it to let us in on that secret before. Mm. But it's a good time to tell you at the end. Mm. So many of these stories fade away, don't they? So many of these stories yeah. play out all their best gags, all their best set pieces, tell you everything you need to know about the characters, moreover, early on. And by the time you you get to the end, you're just running around and fin- and tying up all the loose mm. ends. But here, yeah. it, is, it is still leaving surprises. And, and then we get a nice big fight. <laughs> yeah. I, I wish I could see that. It sort of brings me on to the thought of what it would have looked like, Warris Hussain's direction. There's so many things I like about the way he the way he directs the Tribe of Gum. Mm. Well, you know, all for other first episodes, but um to the extent that the Tribe of Gum, one hundred thousand BC, is in any way watchable, and I don't dislike it as much as a lot of people do, it's all all down to Morris Hussain. The camera work is extraordinary. It's in mm. many ways never bettered in the in the black and white studio era. Mm. And there's also a judicious amount of f- studio filming for important moments. Yeah. The, not just the big fight, but certain other moments that, that he knew would be difficult to ac- accomplish in the video studio. Again, I think it looks a million dollars, a hundred thousand dollars anyway. <laughs> I'd love to see if he, if he brought the same approach to Marco Polo. I mean, obviously he would have done. But for me, the, the big question is, would these sets, would this more leisurely story mm. have played with strength the same way that Tribe of Gum did? I think it probably, I think it would have done. It sort of thrived under under immense pressure in uh, Tribe of Gum, an earthy child, didn't he? So mm. when he's in this relaxed setting, you'd like to think that he he could be more creative, unless the creativity was forced by the pressure to cover certain flaws or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's a very different sort of story, isn't it? I mean, he uses a lot of very tight close-ups in Tribe Gum, mm. not just to cover the fact that the set is very yeah. small, but because it's a very claustrophobic, menacing story. Here, with these wonderful sets, he would have probably pulled back as far as he could have done. Yeah. Uh, if, if it looked anywhere near as epic as it does from the production photographs, we would have been in for a treat. Another thing, another thing that's different, of course, is that um, the first... The first four episodes didn't really give him much of a chance to show what he, how he is as an actor's director. 
Mm. There's only so much you can do. I mean, really, you're just firefighting when you're directing a caveman story. You're just trying to make the actors not look as embarrassing yeah. as possible. Here, he has proper characters mm. and he casts proper actors. Again, it's one of the mm. best casts we get in. Well, well, I think it's an all-time, you know, out there with the all-time best cast, isn't it? I was going to damn it by faint praise by <laughs> saying the Hartnell era or the or the sixties or whatever, but. Um, it's an interesting quirk, isn't it, that, that the three of them, Darren Nesbitt, Mark Eden and Martin Miller, all appear in the Prisoner episode, don't they, about the uh, assassinations. So I gather. It's your funeral. I haven't watched it for a while. Hmm, go back and watch hmm. it. It's, it's, I will. It, so will I. No, <laughs> <laughs> they do, and it's true. And it, it's slightly uncanny seeing them there. I like to think that if you watch that episode of The Prisoner, you might get some sense of, of how they would appear in Marco Polo, but that's probably completely and utterly untrue. <laughs> Considering what the way loose, some of the lengths loose cannon often go to, I'm surprised you didn't nick footage from there and, <laughs> and try and repurpose it. Maybe that would have been a step too far even for them. Mm. The one thing that, that did... Uh, two things that watching it this time left an impression on me that I hadn't particularly appreciated before is uh, the doctor mm. the thing that threw it into focus was when he's absent in episode two largely absent in episode two they have to rewrite because he's ill and they say he's sulking and that's quite a nice joke but it threw into focus hartnell's performance throughout as well and that he's utterly mad <laughs> and my preconception, certainly as a child, about Hartnell in the role is that he always felt a bit fluffed, a bit ad-libbed, lots of bluster about his acting. And when they uncovered that Desert Island Discs or the interview, you, you got to appreciate a bit more how much of a performance it was. But it was thrown into, it thrown into focus, particularly in this story, by that he's off sulking line and then I started to appreciate what else he's doing in there I mean he's utterly mad and he's angry but he's also giggling his head off a lot of mm. the time sometimes within seconds of doing one thing and then the other there's a bit where he's caught tinkering in the TARDIS isn't there? How much of that do you reckon is in the script and how much is Hartnell just suddenly thinking up a new... I think it's all in the script and that yeah. is my revelation if you like because mm. it was scripted that he was off sulking. Yeah and therefore a character is capable of sulking is also capable of doing all the other things there's one bit where um, yeah he's caught tinkering in the TARDIS where he turns on Marco Polo or, or Tigana and calls him a savage and then as they cart him mm. off he's laughing his head off there's yes. another bit where Ian is trying to explain to Marco Polo why he can't sell off the TARDIS because they, they couldn't make another one because they need metal. And Ian says uh, it's more complex than you can understand. And the doctor chips in against Ian and says, and neither do you, young man. <laughs> you know, yeah. castigating him yep. for fighting his corner. That's a good line. Yeah. Yeah, it's nothing to do with the plot. It's just purely character. Mm. It's reminding us that there are different levels here. It's distinguishing between the various different ways in which our characters are. Because we already know, the um, we've got two Earth... There's, there's different axes. We've got two 20th century people and two very highly intelligent people from an advanced future race. Mm. But on the other hand, Susan has the personality of a 15-year-old schoolgirl yeah. and gets to show off a lot of her groovy early 1960s slang, doesn't she? Which mm. is 
I think more than anywhere else here. He's he's certainly big, picked up on that note. I mean, I don't want to oversell it, but I almost feel like the, the Doctor's character changes forever during episode one. It starts with him being as angry as he's ever been. He's so bad-tempered <laughs> at the beginning of episode one. And by the end, we see this first fit of hysterical giggling. The first appearance of what I always think of as the season three Hartnell Doctor. Yeah. But it starts here. And he's laughing because he, he doesn't know what, what he's going to do. He's trapped, isn't he? And he and he finds yeah. it so utterly hilarious that he doesn't, you know, he hasn't got a, a he's up a tree without a canoe or whatever the phrase is. I think it's rather more real and powerful and slightly disturbing than the the, <laughs> the giggling that Hartnell throws in, giggling and hand um, <laughs> hand rubbing that he does a, yeah. a lot in by this by his third year when mm. he's really softened the doctor so much that he's just me yeah, me me. He's yeah. turned to Professor Yaffle, but mm. here, as you say, it's almost bipolar he's going from one extreme to the other did you enjoy the educational notes yes i like to learn yes i mean again it works better than it really ought to when when they work in they're not always seamlessly interwoven sometimes they're a bit clunky like uh you know it's rather surprising to find the daughter of a high government official working as a servant in marco polo's caravan (laughs) where where you've got historical placement Mm. and describing the the set of the characters and forwarding the plot. Yeah. That's a bit of a placeholder bit of dialogue, but it doesn't bother me that they didn't go back and try and <laughs> make it. I just find it charming. Mm. And and then when it and then the more obvious moments like Pincho's story and the legend of the Hashashins and all that. I would much rather take a break and learn a, a fairy tale from a distant culture than waste the same amount of time on somebody escaping from a prison cell, running down a corridor and being captured again, you know? Mm. If it's padding, mm. then if it's not forwarding the plot, then I'd like it to forward something else. And sure. if that be my understanding of another civilization, or even just telling me something about the characters or making me laugh, mm. any of those things, any combination of all those things, please do that. Yeah. Don't just... <laughs> but it's a lesson that the, that the program loses. Yeah, they don't do it again in the same way, do they? I suppose there's a touch of it in the Aztecs, especially on the... Um uh, on the historical side. Yeah, the Aztecs should be better because it's tighter, isn't mm. it? But I don't think it necessarily is. No, it's, it's, it's different. Yeah. Mm. It's the first really good four-part story, the Aztecs. I'm going to say that now because we're not going to get to talk about it, are we? <laughs> <laughs> they also... The the lessons are doled out per character as well, They're quite like that, especially between Ian and Barbara. Barbara does the historical... Oh, Cathay... Cathay? Cathay yes, China! <laughs> And Ian does the sciencey bits, and it really works. Yes, his explanation of how condensation works, which again isn't gratuitous because he has to explain it to Marco Polo. Mm. And that's again because we've got these layers, which is why that, that nice bit where you have the doctor set up above Ian who set up above Marco yeah. no, brilliant. plays out well as drama. No, I think, it's, I think it's terrific. Brilliant. Any more thoughts on the serial itself, Paul? As I said before, I think if, if I could see it, I I think if people could see it, there would be no complaints that it's too slow. I mean, the first five minutes are the only bits that really feel like typical 60s Doctor Who. The first five minutes, which has some rather run-of-the-mill business, like um, Barbara screams, Look over there! But there's nothing there now, Barbara! But I, it was, I swear! You know, the sort of thing that has me rolling my eyes. Yeah. In that it happens every five minutes in a Terry Nation script. But that's all over and done with. And, and we're meant to believe it could be a... We're meant to be expecting a, a yeah a 
Yeti or something, and or a woolly mammoth or something. So if that and, was Luca Rotti, it's almost like him saying, "I know this is what you're expecting, but I'm going to take you somewhere different. I'm better than this." But the, the telesteps or the, the production photographs portray it's actually just a really ordinary-looking man in pretty furs. obviously, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah, I, my only slight negative, uh, or slightly controversial take might uh, is that it might not look as lush as everybody talks about i think when we had the color uh loose cannon and it was more production photographs yeah you didn't really get a sense of of the apart from in a couple of shots you didn't really get a sense of the studio bound limited nature of it uh and then when you've got the more recent photographs i think you get more of a sense of how it would look that's very true, and in the in the second loose cannon recon, you can tell yeah. because they've they've mixed and matched the two, yeah. so you'll often cut from a very wide view of a set from a particular angle to yeah. a much narrower view. Yeah. But then, you know, my my optimism about how it might look is based on Boris Hussein's camera work from his other sure. serial. Yeah, I did notice a f- that I was trying very hard to see if I could see any interesting direction from the telesnaps and it isn't always obvious because i think a lot of his qualities are in the cutting rather than just the individual framing it's not like every every shot's a work of art but it's i think it's the piece as a whole mm. i did know, I did know one very interesting low angle in the last episode um i think it was to the beginning of uh the scrap between tagana and marco very low camera which would have been wouldn't have been mm. easy to do in those days yeah. So it, there are. Th- I think there will be things to discover. Unless they, unless they it. lifted the entire setup six feet, <laughs> put it on stilts. <laughs> well, it's possible. <laughs> wasn't the wasn't the ceiling only ten foot high anyway? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Back in those days. Yeah. Oh dear. So. Okay. Well, good. We, we seem to be unanimous on that. I'm giving it seven go- seven gourds out of seven. It's missing. Oh yeah. We can't oh, watch thanks it. for bringing me back down to earth again. <laughs> so, do you fancy its chances of it turning up? Oh, gold. Not as much as I did a while back. <laughs> I don't know if you remember Tim, but there were some heady days when, when optimism was, was being chucked mm. around by the bucket load. People were showering each other in, in optimism. <laughs> and other things. Let's let's start. Let's take a step back even be, before that. For a long time, since people have known, since more information has emerged about sales patterns, people have made a very simplistic assumption that it's more likely to show up because there were more copies made. Yeah. Uh, leading to that oft-asked question: Why do we not have any of it? Mm. Why do we have three episodes of Dalek's Master Plan when it was never sold? Mm. And we have nothing, not a second of Marco Polo when it was sold to mm. two dozen countries? Mm. Hang on, one, two, three, four. God, it actually is 24 countries. Mm. Okay, that's a good guess. So, and then more recent research, or perhaps not research, but it feels to me fairly recently that um, a theory has arisen to explain possibly why we might not why the, these 24 copies mm. might not give an advantage. 
Do you know the one where whereof I speak? I think Mr. Venezes might have come up with it. Most the, of those copies. The recall of the stored field. Yeah. Suppressed field. All the sales well. from April 65 through to mm. in Australia through to Sierra Leone in July 67 would mm. all, I think, have been stored field. And there's a theory that they might have all been recalled because the BBC yeah. took their quality assurance seriously. And they didn't, they didn't want these substandard copies stay out there in the field mm. after they'd been... Because they, they did go through a systematic program in, was it 67, of, of re-creating yeah. new I don't know when suppressed it was, but field did, copies. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So it's possible. I don't entirely believe they were organized enough to get them all recalled and destroyed just because they were technically inferior. But, but it continued to be sold after that point. It did... Well, to the tune of one, <laughs> there was one subsequent sale. I mean, they, they, the sales are consistent through, it's almost every month, it, through 65 into 66 and um, into 67, averaging about one a month. Mm. And was the, f was, was the final sale was Ethiopia, presumably? Yeah, there's a, we've got quite a big gap there. We've gone from 67 in Sierra Leone through to Ethiopia, sale in January 71. Now, what do we call that? Back catalogue. Mm. Now that may well have been the only sale of the um, stored field version. Yeah, I've, we've probably used those the wrong way around, <laughs> mm. but hopefully the listener will know what we meant. So it just so happens. I mean, in terms of if we if we talk about probabilities, which is a mug's game, but the probability of something existing being at the end of a bicycle chain mm. is not just an advantage. It's the only way we're going to find a story. Yeah, if it was anywhere else in the bicycle chain, we're not going to find it in that country because it was moved on. That's the whole point. Mm. Ethiopia is the end of a bicycle chain, possibly the beginning of the bicycle chain. It was a sale to that country. Mm. We don't know what happened to it. It might still be there. Mm. In terms of foreign sales, foreign archives, it feels like the best chance we have. And there's a deafening silence on it. Mm. We don't know if anyone has ever got in touch with Ethiopia with Ethiopian television, we don't know if anyone's visited our archive, and if so, what they found. We're told somebody has, but the results are not forthcoming. <laughs> no, indeed not. But, <clears throat> seven years ago, about this time of year, it was Easter weekend when the, uh, when the rumours broke, uh, we started hearing about Marco Polo having been found. And, of course, in the October of the same year, we, we got given Enemy and Webb. And the question remained, well, where was Marco Polo? And the rumours were so, ran so deep that you even had people like uh, Steve Roberts on particular interview doing the, I always think of George in Blackadder. I think you'll find that Captain Blackadder is completely and utterly guilty of nothing more. He did, a, <laughs> he did that a little bit in his interview, didn't he? In that I'm absolutely certain that Phil has Marco Polo. If only because... <laughs> and and I think everybody thought it was coming back. And uh, 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 I, I wonder why it hasn't come back. Uh, how could that have been untrue, Paul? Do you I have mean, a view? I mean, Steve qualified his comments later on, but the fact remains that it's pretty much the only time that anybody that close to the action... Hmm has ever specified, expressed any optimism or, or near certainty 
about the recovery of a particular story. And yes, he said, later said, that's only based on the fact that there should be a lot of copies out there. Phil should be tripping over copies of it. Yeah. But, you know, uh, so... Even the, even then in the context that, that this, is a, this is a guy who's out there gathering up everything that's out there and there's lots to be gathered, therefore, statistically, it's probable that he will have a copy of Marco Polo. Yes, I mean, we don't really need to get into the... No. The fact that it, <laughs> when the room was running particularly rampant, mm. he was being said to have three, four, five copies of it. Um, <laughs> that is not well sourced, um, to say the least. That seems to be just based on people mm. looking at lists of sales and thinking, well, maybe he might have found, you know, what's the highest number we can get this to? Mm. But, um, yes, uh, as the, you were saying. The, the particular rumour that, hasn't quite been well none of the rumors have quite been answered fully apart from the passage of time uh, not producing these things but the particular rumor that has done the rounds is about this uh, film collector in melbourne who mm. purported to have copies of uh, a copy of marco polo power of the daleks and was it evil of the daleks yes that this is not a rumor he well, he did purport to have them. He did we purport to have them. them, yes, correct. And that, to my mind, and as far as I understand it, hasn't been satisfactorily debunked. And I can talk a little bit about that, in that I've had a an account told to me by somebody somewhat involved in the process. And I, I, think, I think, for my own peace of mind, that might explain why... We thought we were getting a copy and didn't. Uh, would it be interesting to know about that? I would very much like to know. And I think our listeners deserve to know. <laughs> well, they might <laughs> deserve to be hearing something they can put no store in. But this is how I understand it. It, it panned out. So you have this collector who is found. And I think Paul Venezes has said publicly that it was found as a fallout from the Bell of Doom hoax. Yeah. Sometime the... 2011, 2012, mm. I think, wasn't it? And so a, a collector was identified who who claimed to have these stories. Uh, I think Paul has also said publicly that, that he, he couldn't believe it because he didn't believe that these copies might exist. And then Damien Shanahan, the man on the ground in Australia, actually argued that there could be copies because of practices at BBC Sydney or, or however these copies might have been made. And so contact was made with this guy now the key thing is and the key reason that they bought that this story might have legs and this hasn't been said publicly as far as i know is that the collector was found and asked so he wasn't out in the public domain telling people he had these things he yeah. was identified and found yeah. and asked what he had, and he said he had these stories. So for a hoaxer, that's not just an unusual MO. Mm. It would make no sense at all. He wasn't... No. I, no. I don't I know what the conversation out. was. He could, have, he could have been winding them up once he was found. But that's, that's why there was a hook. Now, there have been various rumours around. Now, what I understand happened is that this guy offered, sight unseen, a copy of the seven episodes of Marco Polo to Damien Shanahan for a fantastic amount of cash. And Damien was unsure as to how to proceed. So what he did, he consulted the, the, the team. And I'm led to understand, and I'll put an allegedly here, that Philip Morris's reply 
was allegedly to say that if you spend all that money on a copy of Marco Polo, if I've got, if I find one anyway, then you'll have wasted your money, or words to that effect. And I'm led to if I find one, if I find one. But, so, Phil, but Philip Morris, as we know, has a way of saying things in a, a non-natural way. So that's split opinion amongst the team. And uh, some thought, well, he's obviously got it. And some thought, no, he's saying if I find one, because he fancied his chances. Hmm. So if we, if we fast forward now to Philip Morris talking to the BBC, I can envisage a situation where Phil has... Uh, hypothetically said well I've got enemy and web here they are and you'll get Marco Polo down the line and when I was talking to a member of the RT in 2014 he told me that Marco Polo was to yet to be handed over and to be released at a later date and that was his understanding of it his understanding was not that it was still to be handed over but that <laughs> sorry it was not that it hadn't been but that it was still Going planned to be, to be. Or had Even. been planned to be before the Omni right. rumor okay. exploded. Not in, in two, he wasn't saying that in 2014 it was still planned. He was no. telling you in 2014 right. that in 2013 it had mm. been planned. Yes. Yeah. And agreed. So uh, I, d I don't know whether the conclusion is correct, but I'm pretty sure the anecdote is correct. And therefore, in my own for my own peace of mind, I can sort of tie that to that being a way for the BBC to be under the impression that Marco Polo was coming in that Phil may have responded overconfidently about there being a copy in Australia. But that doesn't answer that doesn't answer the investigation into Ethiopia. It doesn't, no. No. And we know Phil has been to Ethiopia. We do. We know that uh, this is a fact, but it's also a lot of um, inference. Mm. In the early days when Phil and Paul were discussing this, the ongoing search on the internet, mm. we got occasional updates as to countries that he'd visited as and when they were ruled out, as and when they were ticked off, they'd been searched, there was nothing there. Yeah. And Ethiopia was never mentioned. It, it was one of many countries that were never mentioned. Mm. But it is kind of unique in that it's a country which later, uh, you post enemy and web reveal in 2013 post that any discussions post that Paul and Phil started mentioning that he had been to Ethiopia yes they started mentioning it in the same breath as Kenya Uganda Zambia countries that he went to quite early on in 2008 mm. and all of the other countries in, in the same breath as which it is mentioned we know were ruled out we've had greater or lesser amounts of detail on what he did and didn't find in those countries yeah so Ethiopia has got a big glowing neon question mark over it. A friend of ours had a conversation with Paul V at a convention a couple of years ago, as recently as that, where Paul didn't noticeably didn't say that Ethiopia had been ruled out. And in fact, he, um, I gather he was still quite open about it. Some, mm. some positive things about <laughs> the Ethiopian archival system. Yeah. I think Phil has also occasionally said nice things about the Ethiopians yeah just as just as one-liners in passing yeah but no detail so it's um it's tantalizing isn't it yes but why on earth we would not receive it not see it in seven years is anyone's guess and no, because uh, he would he had definitely been there by 
the end of 2012, I think. Yeah. They're, they're, they're piecing things together. He says that in 2008, he went to Ethiopia. Hmm. He couldn't get in yep. because they were very good with security at the time. Yeah. And he negotiations took place. Um, and reading between the lines, it may have been three or four years before he finally got a look, 2011, 2012. So we haven't heard anything. Hmm. And it would it makes no sense if his search was successful and the films were repatriated that we wouldn't have heard anything. Well, I'm happy to conclude he drew a blank. Yeah. Looking that way, isn't it? Yeah. Or, he, or he didn't get in. <laughs> <laughs> he still didn't manage to crack the red the, tape. The, the, way, the way he's told the story makes it as, as near as damn it that the way he talks about the first visit being a failure... The, the heavy implication mm. is that he did get in at a later date. In fact, I think he's actually said that. Yeah. So. But then he also said that the station manager in Joss was a really nice guy and then 30 seconds later was calling him a damnable thief. He was. <laughs> Phil, Phil's storytelling it really keeps you on your toes, doesn't it? It does. I it's one of the joys. Day with that. It's one of the joys of listening to him. <laughs> anyway. But it doesn't repaint careful study necessarily. No. <laughs> so there we go. We have Ethiopia. Uh, I suppose I should probably also mention Nigeria. That's the end of a bicycling route. It mm. was sold to Kaduna quite early on, November 65. We might have assumed that it didn't exist because it wasn't because Ian Levine didn't track it down in the early 80s. But of course, Ian Levine was also not told about Web and Enemy. Mm. So who knows? Maybe Marco Polo was still in Kaduna in the early 80s. It wasn't there when Phil got there in 2010-11 because he told us that Kaduna had thrown out all their films. They'd gone out and buried them in the desert. Well, there was the apocryphal tale of someone ringing the BBC and saying, would you like this copy of season one back? And they said, no, thank you very much. They're all out on DVD and they binned the lot. It was an apocryphal tale, but has now been substantiated uh, by Richard Molesworth. It so, has. He has substantiated, mm. yes. He seems to be alone in terms of people who would know the truth or otherwise that story in, in being happy to, I say happy in inverted commas, to, <laughs> to verify. I assume he's not actually laughing hysterically at the th like a late Hartnell at the thought of it going up in smoke. But anyway, um, it does seem, tragically enough, that Nigeria's copy, the Kaduna copy of Marco Polo, went up in smoke, unnecessarily so, Somewhere between 1980, you know, Ian's search mm. in, in the early 80s and Phil's visit in 2010, and very possibly in 1999, because that's when the apocryphal anecdote mm. um, takes place. Yes. People often ask, people who don't want to believe this, I don't imply that the, o that the only reason for not believing this apocryphal story is because you psychologically can't, don't want it to be true. You can't mm. bear the thought it's true. But I think, to be honest, for a lot of people, it is the case. People say, this doesn't make any sense. How could we have found out about this? If it was known at the time, yeah, back mm. in 1999 mm. when this call was made, mm. something would have been done about it. It wouldn't have been too late to, to mm. amend the situation. Yeah. But um, the only way I can imagine that it might have been discovered is that if it was discovered, there might have been paperwork to that effect, which was found at the Nigerian end. It's possible that nobody at the BBC end, the London end, knew about this for, for 10 years or so. Yeah, indeed. Phil said he's found a lot of paperwork in in his Indeed. travels and I imagine I, I believe that's imagine. the case yeah 
I believe that's the case. But you say up in smoke, it could have been buried in the desert. And it therefore, could he could have ridden out to it on his JCB, as he has yep. uh, explained. But then With a scarf around his head and a, big, and a big bottle of water. If he's already got a copy, then why would he be trying to dig up one in the Kadunan bush? Hmm. I wonder when he was digging up the Kadunan bush. Well, if, if it was during his initial foray into Nigeria, which we think was possibly late mm. 2010, early 2011... It could have been the first copy of Marco Polo he came across, mm. which is why he w- was so desperate that he went to all the trouble of digging, digging in the desert for it. Mm. This is much more apocryphal. Mm. He's, he's mentioned three or four times in public that he's dug up a, a rubbish tip. Every time he tells the story, it inches closer to resolution. <laughs> two th- it's now two or three years since the final iteration of that story where... He had successfully retrieved film cans and had taken them back to his tier lab <laughs> to to check through them. And we've heard nothing. So um, yeah. I'm very, you know, that's on my short list of things I'm looking forward to finding out more about in his book. Even if it was just mush, it's still a f- it would be a fascinating story to actually find. <laughs> that's no way to call his book. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Any any other? There's no. Yeah, we. I mean, we, we. If we went into any of the other rumors, we'd be uh, mining. We'd be here for seven years. Yeah, one of the only other places it could have been is. Oh dear, is it Ghana? They sold the first five stories to Ghana, so theoretically, if it didn't get bicycled on, there could be one there. But of Ghana, we've heard nothing. So. No. Anyway, let's stop yakking on about this uh, this rumour. It's not appeared. We can't watch it. We have no. wonderful telesnaps. We have the audio. We have the book. And we're very lucky that it is the most substantial part of the first two years that is missing in that it could be a heck of a lot worse. Yes. What a lovely positive note to end on. But Good. I wish it was Keys of Marinus and... One episode of The Edge of Destruction was missing instead. Oh, you don't like Keys of Marinus either? Oh, that's <laughs> comforting. It's fine. <laughs> Good. We are of one mind. Um, anyway, anyway, listeners, that concludes our review of Marco Polo and indeed our first episode of this podcast project. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope Paul has enjoyed it. Paul, have you enjoyed it? Yeah, it's always good to chew the fat. So please do, listener, give us feedback, get in contact with us. I'm available on Twitter at Doctor, that's D-R, at Doctor Who Podcasters. Paul is available on Twitter at Mr. Paul Morris. Have I got yep, that right? I, I don't encourage conversation, but if anyone out there desperately <laughs> wants to know something, or just se- send bouquets and brickbats, you know where I am. And indeed, as a fledgling podcast that can only go on for so long because it's a finite number of stories we'll be reviewing, it would be greatly appreciated if you share it and tell people about it so that we find our maximum potential audience. Because at the moment, it's just my mum and Paul's wife. (laughs) (laughs) What a horrifying prospect. And there we go. Thanks so much, everyone. Goodbye. Bye.